verse 18. When I was in college, during a small stint of time that I was home, I needed a job, and so I worked on the janitorial staff for the University of Portland in their athletic department. On some evenings, they would host concerts in their main athletic complex, and if they were short uh, ticket takers or security, we would fill in spots uh, when we weren't cleaning toilets. On one occasion, I was filling in in that capacity for uh, the Faith Hill concert. How many of you know Faith Hill? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Well, if you don't know her, she was, I think she still is somewhat popular, but was back then very popular uh, in terms of country music. And as part of that role that I was in that night uh, as security, I was given a backstage pass, a badge. So I called Kelly on, you know, what basically was the brick cell phone back then, you know, the little Nokias, right, back in the day. I was like, hey, I got a backstage pass. We liked a few of her songs, and so I said, should I go back and try and get an autograph? And Kelly and I talked, and she was like, yeah, absolutely. So I figured, I'll try and go back. So I walked back to the backstage green room there, and I walked past all the support people that are running around trying to get stuff done, and I was looking intently for who I imagined uh, would be Faith Hill, you know? Because I'm sure she walks around every day, all the time, looking like she does on her CD covers, right? I mean, that was, that was the smart thing. Now, never, never having met her, I imagined she would look like she was on the CD covers, like I said, and that she was, uh, I don't know why, but taller, <laughs> right? I don't know why when I meet people for the first time, I expect them to be taller than normal average height, but I just do. And so maybe, maybe that's part of my problem being tall, but I looked around, I looked around, I tried to find her, and I was getting frustrated because I had to get back to my post, and so in my frustration, I finally loudly said, has anyone seen Faith Hill? You know where this is going. Well, to my amazement, the woman literally standing six inches away from me turned to me. She was holding her baby. She was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, no makeup on, and she said, I'm Faith Hill. She was very kind, very, very kind. She was extremely gracious to sign my badge, and I talked to her for a second after I got my heart out of my stomach, and I very sheepishly moved away and walked on. I walked away feeling awkward and a bit dumb, as I often do when I'm interacting with people, and I felt mostly dumb that I hadn't known it was her. I'd created something in my mind that wasn't reality, and so when I saw her in flesh and blood, and there was this normal person standing there in jeans and a t-shirt, I didn't know what to do about it. Now, she turned out to be amazingly gracious and nice, more so than I could imagine you know, a star would be. And so she surpassed uh, everything I'd thought of in that respect. But it was a case of mistaken identity, right? I looked directly past the real thing in order to think about what I thought was the real thing. And this morning, our text deals with three separate events dealing with Jesus that are captured here in the gospel according to Mark that show a serious case of similar mistaken identity. You see, the Jews of the day and really the entire world that knew the Jewish scripture had built up something in their head as to what the Messiah would be, this military leader that would come in on a white horse and destroy the Romans and do all these things. And I guarantee, depending upon the individual person, they had all different ideas of what reality would be. But what we'll see in our story today in these three separate sections is that we'll see that uh, those who should have recognized the Messiah looking directly past him, and in fact, because reality was different than what they thought, getting into conflict with him. When Jesus has kicked off his Galilean ministry, his time is um, going well in, in Capernaum and in the surrounding areas, and people are starting to flock to him. I mean, this guy has a church growth strategy like nothing else. But his reputation has preceded him and reached some of the leaders of the surrounding political groups and the Jewish faith and they're beginning to feel uncomfortable with the revolutionary teaching of this backwoods rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, especially a group that we'll see known as the Pharisees. And so we begin to see the conflict surrounding Jesus and his pronouncement of what the kingdom of heaven should be. We've spent the last few weeks looking at the people of the kingdom, the authority of the king, the character of the kingdom. And Jesus is pronouncing this and he's showing it and it's starting to build conflict. Now, let's remind ourselves of this conflict so far. If you look at chapter 2, right at the beginning, Jesus claims in that first section there, healing the paralytic that was lowered down from the roof, he proclaims that he is the Son of Man. You guys can go back and listen to that teaching again. Uh, the Son of Man who has the authority to forgive sins. 
Now, this is from uh, the study a couple weeks ago where we looked at the prophet Daniel and the fact that he is the one given authority over all kings, all nations. He is the Lord of lords, king of kings. Then, after Jesus calls Levi there, starting in verse 13, otherwise known as Matthew, to follow him, there is a great celebration, most likely in Levi, Matthew's house, because he's celebrating his inclusion as a disciple, his following of this rabbi. And so the Pharisees question how Jesus can even associate with someone like a tax collector who's been taking money from the Jews. How can he associate with sinners? My goodness. And Jesus compares himself to a physician coming to heal the sick, that that's why he came, not to bring the righteous into the kingdom, but to get the sick and to heal them and bring them in. And so now we come to the escalating conflict around who Jesus is. These Pharisees and the religious leaders are going, who is this guy? And that's the question that Mark is trying to portray to us. It will build and build and build, and it will culminate in the question of Jesus asking Peter, who do you say that I am? But that's the question being asked. They want to know who he claims to be. And we see here what the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, what they claim that he is, really nothing at all. So Mark is pressing hard on this question. And the question is for you and for me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now today, what we're going to look at is we're going to see this, confusion and conflict surrounding the identity of Jesus. Confusion and conflict surrounding the identity of Jesus. And this will continue throughout the book, but it's really starting to get a bit of focus here today. So let's read our text for this morning, starting in Mark 2, 18, and moving all the way through 3, 6. And we're going to see this confusion and conflict surrounding the identity of Jesus. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read? I love it when he says that to the Pharisees who should know better. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man there was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to, him, said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The first thing that we are going to look at this morning to understand this conflict and confusion is the parties involved. The parties involved. On the one side, you see Jesus and his circle of called followers, the Jesus circle, so to speak. Jesus is training his disciples. They're early in their tutelage. They are observing their master speak and act in illustration. At this point, uh, they, were, they were probably bumps on a log, just watching him illustrate the kingdom of God, trying to figure out what he's talking about. And on the other side, you have a few different parties that are mentioned here in our text today. In the first section, you have the disciples of John the baptizer and disciples of the Pharisees. In the second section, you have the Pharisees themselves. And then in the third section, you have this added group known as the Herodians mentioned at the end. These are three very different groups with one common theme. It's kind of like when 9-11 happened, 
We had a common enemy, and so what happened with the Republicans and Democrats? They joined together against the common enemy. Normally, fight like cats and dogs, right? Or what are they? Donkeys and elephants, <laughs> right? I don't know that those two ever fight very much. But the reality is, is that they were fighting because they didn't have a common enemy. When a common enemy comes, all of a sudden, they join together. And each of these groups has the common theme of wanting to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, it's different the way that they look at it. it they differ in what it means. For example, the disciples of John want to do so through a religious lens, through repentance and holiness, looking for the Messiah. They were the aesthetic group, ascetic group. They were the ones who were almost like monks, right? The more we remove the things of this world, the more we deny ourselves, the more we repent, we are going to bring in the kingdom of God and bring forth the Messiah, which interestingly, John has already pointed out Jesus as that Messiah, but many of them are still not sure, and so they're staying loyal to John the baptizer even though he's in prison rather than follow Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and their disciples want to usher in the kingdom by creating a holy and pure Jewish people. They're not necessarily the monks that pull out into the wilderness. They're the ones that are engaging in the daily life of the people, trying to create a government that in and of itself is pure. Now, what's interesting is that the Pharisees always get a bad rap because they are viewed as a bunch of legalists. But if you look at their history, they actually came from a very good beginning and a good place. The Pharisees were a group that sincerely believed that the Jewish nation had received what it rightfully deserved, that they forsook the Torah, the law of God, and they turned to idolatry. And so the Pharisees agreed with this and were saying, hey guys, we have to become purer. We have to become better obedient, more obedient followers of the law. And they further believed that by restoring adherence to the Torah, this would repair the breach in relationship with God and Israel and once again establish them as God's people and kingdom. And there's some sense to this if you look at the prophets. So to be a Pharisee was not in and of itself a bad thing. Many Pharisees eventually followed Jesus after his death because Jesus' teachings, they make tons of sense with the prophets of the Old Testament. And so men like Nicodemus were like, I'm going to follow that guy. Paul himself maintains his title of Pharisee. He's not ashamed of it. He maintains his title of Pharisees as one obedient to God's law. Let me just read, from you, uh, read for you really quickly from Acts 23, 6. He's standing uh, in um, judgment uh, in a court, and he says in Acts 23, 6, he says, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He doesn't deny that he was a Pharisee. He actually goes with it. Well, the Herodians, they were kind of odd ducks. The Herodians were ones who wanted to uh, pursue uh, this kingdom of God, not through religious or spiritual means, but they were doing so through political and nationalistic means. We know Christians like this today, right? If we back the appropriate party or the appropriate person that goes into office, then we're going to finally get the kingdom. For them, it was backing the dynasty of the family of Herod and their position as kings of the Jews under Roman rule. Herod Antipas there was king, so to speak, or governor over uh, Galilee. And so when it came to their view of religion, all these groups were enemies, but when it came to the restoration of this idea of the kingdom of Israel, that the Jewish nation would be reestablished, these three groups were thematically the same. And so in Jesus, they look at him with disdain. They think this guy is screwing up what we're trying to do. The rightful heir to the throne of the kingdom of God was coming and saying, I'm actually the one that's going to usher it in. And they were saying, no, you're not. Jesus was announcing that due to his presence, the kingdom of God was at hand, and all three of them were thinking, no, until we remove him, there's no chance of the kingdom coming in. To the people, Jesus and his disciples weren't as religiously zealous as the disciples of John. To the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples were actually acting contrary to the Torah and to their plan to initiate the kingdom because they were acting contrary to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And to the Herodians, this odd prophet and rabbi looked like one that might start a political insurrection that would disturb the position of power that Herod Antipas had worked so hard to build underneath the covering and protection of Rome. And so this brings us to the predicament that comes. The next thing we can look at is the predicament. 
We've got these three groups, the, uh, the disciples of John and the people pointing them out. We've got the Pharisees and we've got the Herodians. And they all have this predicament that they're running into with Jesus, that he's teaching this revolutionary new teaching. So let's look at it again in order of the sections we've gone through. First, we have the people coming to Jesus and comparing him and his disciples to the disciples of John the baptizer. These men fast, but you don't. Why not? Now, it could be that the disciples of John had not fully gotten the memo that Jesus was the Lamb of God as pointed to by John the baptizer. And so they might have been fasting as a means of entreating God and mourning the fact that their master, their head rabbi, John the baptizer, was in Herod's prison. And that might be why they're fasting here. And if this were the case, they expected Jesus and his followers, because remember who baptized Jesus? You guys remember? John the baptizer. They're standing there saying, you guys follow this same guy. He's in prison. Why aren't you fasting for him? That's the appropriate thing to do. Or it could be that fasting was seen as a badge of religious zeal. It was particularly done as a sign of recognition of the need of repentance and humility. If you don't fast, you must not be religious, they thought. The main fast of the Jewish Torah was to be done on the Day of Atonement. But as time carried on, other days were added for varying reasons, all stemming from mourning. In other words, these people could be saying, Jesus, if you and your followers are a religious big deal... Why don't they act like a religious big deal? Why don't they act mournful like the rest of the spiritual holy ones? And this is what religious people have always done, isn't it? Fast. And to a certain extent, they were correct, weren't they? If you look at the Old Testament, for example, Joel 2.12, what does it say? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Now, that's out of context, but that's what it says. You got to fast. But we'll see what Jesus has to say about this. Now, in our next story, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus on the Sabbath. The first predicament for these people that brought up John's disciples was, you're not fasting, you're not being religious enough. But in our next story, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus on the Sabbath. Jesus and his followers were going through the grain fields, or it could also be corn. It makes a little bit more sense. I've always wondered how these big dudes are like, ooh, kernel of wheat, right? That's how they're sustaining themselves. Could also be corn. They were ripping off ears of corn and eating that. Either way, they were gleaning, if you will, to sustain themselves, something very much allowed in the Torah. And the Pharisees point this out to Jesus as their rabbi and say, this is not lawful. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, this was working and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And from one standpoint, they were correct, weren't they? If you look at Exodus 31, for example, this is in verses 12 through 17. Let me just read it to you. A literal reading of this would mean that these guys are totally dead on. It says in Exodus 31, 12, And Yahweh said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, that's a pretty high priority, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Can you imagine if we kept that today? Yeah, Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head out. I'm not going to be at church today. Why? Oh, I got stuff to do. Yikes. All right. Let's leave it there. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. You want to do the echo on that one, Tom? Forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So there's this predicament. Jesus is obviously breaking the law, is he not? He and his disciples, they're not following the Torah. Well, we'll see what Jesus has to say about this. And third, the third predicament is in our last section. We see the Pharisees again on the Sabbath encircling Jesus. Jesus has come to the synagogue, most likely the same one in Capernaum, and there is a person with a maimed, withered hand, and Jesus sees the man and has compassion on him, as was his habit. 
But the Pharisees watch to see what he's going to do because if he heals him, they would classify that as work and they would accuse him of the same thing they accused his disciples of. They would accuse him of not following God's law. But Jesus draws the man in and challenges the thinking of the Pharisees by asking them, which is more lawful? Take a look there, verse 4 of chapter 3. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. This should be a simple answer, should it not? One would think, simple answer, life. But notice that they have trouble with it. They know that to answer kill would bring up the ire and hatred of the people that follow them. And to answer heal would go against the case they are building against Jesus. So they stay silent. They're stuck. So what does Jesus have to say about this? What does he have to say about all these things? Well, this brings us to the third and largest point of the teaching today, the pronouncement. Interestingly enough, Mark paints Jesus in each of these sections as answering each of them with a pronouncement of his identity. That's how he answers them. Do you ever, I don't know about, maybe I'm just the only sinner in here, do you ever want Jesus to just answer really pointedly, like really straightforward so you can read it and go, I know what he means? Anybody else want to, yeah? Yeah. And those of you that are Bible scholars, I know you're like, well, no, no, it's that whole thing about, you know, he, he speaks in parables. I know, I get that. It's fulfilling prophecy, but it's still kind of annoying sometimes, right? <laughs> when the lightning bolt comes down, Patrick, you can take over, okay? <laughs> but it is. But here's the thing. When you look at it and you study the word, it very quickly becomes very simple. That's the thing. I'm only 40 years old. I've been studying the word of God for about half my life. But the more I study it, the more this stuff is actually really simple. All Jesus is asking us of us when he asks us to delve deep and to figure out his parabolic answers is to just know the word of God. So all we have to do to make it simple is to study the word more. Amen? Amen. Amen. So hopefully I made up for the comment there that Jesus' words are annoying. <laughs> all right. We'll strike that from the teaching later. Jesus answers with a pronouncement of his identity. The gospel author is trying to help the hearer begin to develop the truth of who Jesus is so that we can answer rightly when Mark 8 comes along who Jesus is. And he's trying to paint this for us, asking us the question, reader, hearer, who do you say that Jesus is? And in the first section, notice Jesus' response. Remember, the party that you're dealing with here is John's disciples and people coming and pointing them out and saying, hey, why aren't you like them? The predicament is you guys aren't fasting like them. And so Jesus' response here is that he does not fight against fasting. Notice that this is not about fasting as if it were a negative thing to do. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you guys are legalists that fast, right? I think sometimes we as Protestants, oh, man, that's a Catholic thing to do. So we as Protestants, we're free. I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and do whatever I want. Well, no, that's not actually true either. And if we were to focus in on fasting, which we might do at some point here uh, in, in Mark, we'll, we'll talk about the fact that fasting is good. If you've never fasted as a Christian, I would encourage you to come talk to one of us as elders and we can walk you through the spiritual growth that happens in the midst of fasting. If you are a person who struggles from addictive behavior, fasting is one of the biggest uh, tools and weapons you have against breaking uh, the flesh and building up self-control. Fasting is awesome. But Jesus isn't talking about fasting here. What he does do is ask the question, is this the right time to fast? I just recently did an uh, addiction um, class, and uh, I was uh, tasked with an assignment where I needed to stop something that was an addictive behavior. And so any of you that know me, <laughs> my, my substance of choice, my poison is sugar. And so I wrote a paper on how to get rid of sugar in my life. Well, I did this three days before my daughter's birthday party. And my daughter requested unicorn sprinkle ice cream sandwiches. Okay? And so my wife makes the literally the most amazing, and this is not just a husband trying to get points, literally the most amazing chocolate chip cookies that have ever existed on the history of the planet. And she put uh, uh, birthday cake ice cream in between them and rolled them in sprinkles. I mean... Guys, they were calling out to me, okay? <laughs> and so there they were sitting on the table, and I finally just said, you know what I can do? I had this genius moment. I'll write the second half of my paper about how hard relapse is. 
And I dove in and ate one of those ice cream sandwiches, and I sent a picture to my professor about how much I enjoyed their, the assignment, and I had a unicorn horn on, and I was eating my, my dessert, and man, I loved it. That was a dumb time for me to practice abstinence from sugar. Would you say an amen to that? Amen. Yeah. Jesus is saying to him, guys, is this the right time to fast? You see, fasting was done, again, to mourn that God was not near and the kingdom of God was not in place. So here they have the King of kings, Lord of lords, God himself standing before them. Is it the time to mourn that God is not near? No, not at all. Jesus responds with the truth that this is not that time. In fact, this should be a time of rejoicing for those that truly follow God because the kingdom is at hand. And rightful heir to the throne, Jesus himself, Son of God, is present with his people. Turn with me to the place of our first reading this morning. Uh, go with me to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 and look at verse 1. It says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. This is God calling out to them, promising them. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, and the Lord, Yahweh, delights in you. That's their name. You guys know that when you become a follower of Christ, that's your name, the Lord delights in you? That's, that's part of your name. Let that sit for a second. And your land shall be married. And for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom, as he rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord is sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. That's Jesus. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary." Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Isn't that... Doesn't that get something going in you? Doesn't that get some goosebumps going? This is how God views you. This is what he's promised you, his salvation, his love. You know, I know, dear church, that we are on the theological side of the spectrum of Reformed. I know that we are not Pentecostal. I know that it is like pulling teeth to get us to clap in rhythm. I know that, okay? And that's not, I'm one of you, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not like the musicians up here, right? But yet... Sometimes I wonder if we get that when we first come in on Sundays, if we get this, that we're here to party, that we're here to rejoice. We are here to mourn, yes, our own sin and the brokenness that we still walk in sometimes. But man, when Seth tries to get you guys to clap or says, are you guys out there? Are you awake? He's not trying to be mean. He's trying to go, what are you here for, church? Church, who do you think Jesus is? He's your king. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's one you rejoice over. He's your beloved. Is this how we respond in worship? We're going to finish today with one of my favorite songs, a song written by Martin Luther. I know I'm stealing your thunder here, Seth. A mighty fortress is our God. Man, if we don't go out of here all walking on a cloud, excited and built up because of that song at the end, I'm, I'm worried about pulses. I'm going to start checking pulses. I'm going to go get my pulse ox that I use in therapy, and I'm going to stand at the door and check everybody's pulses. Because, man, we are here to worship and rejoice in our beloved, in our bridegroom. Amen. This is God's promise to his true people. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus' point back in Mark is that the people knew what was occurring in the context of Christ's coming incarnate. If they knew that, they would realize that God had made good on his promise, that, 
62 from Isaiah is occurring in the personhood of Jesus. He'd not forsaken his people. He'd not left them. He'd not been silent for 400 years. He was preparing for the incarnation. And his enduring and steadfast love and fulfillment of salvation was coming. Why would you weep and mourn and fast? This was instead a time for rejoicing. To mourn at that point would be to mourn like at my daughter's birthday party or to mourn, as Jesus says, at a wedding celebration. But Jesus says, in the foreshadowing of the cross, there will be a time for mourning. When Jesus was taken from them, when the bridegroom was taken, he said, you will fast then because there's a sense of mourning. And so now we sit in this tension. We come and we rejoice in the fact that we know who our God is. We've seen as humanity our beloved, and we know he's returning, and yet we also mourn because he's been taken away from us in a sense. And so there's this tension that occurs, and that's why we feel both when we're in the midst of the gathering. And then Jesus continues back in Mark telling the people that they have to realize something new has occurred and is occurring. Just like it would be unwise to put a new patch of cloth on an old wineskin and then pour actively fermenting, bubbling wine into it. These people were trying to view this new movement of God through Jesus Christ as fitting within the old paradigm of their Old Testament Jewish religion of the exiled and suffering nation of Israel. And Jesus says you can't do that. You can't mix the new with the old. He wasn't abrogating the old. He wasn't saying, I'm getting rid of it, but he's fulfilling what Habakkuk said. Uh, God is going to do a new thing. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling the promise of God that the people of Israel had not understood in the very way he lived and displayed the heart of the Father. He was bringing a true understanding of what it was to be religiously zealous. And it didn't have to do with traditions that were rote and empty and heartless. It had to do with love, love of God. In that, you do fast sometimes. Love of people, in that sometimes you don't fast. Jesus came perfectly portraying the heart of God in fasting. Turn back from Isaiah 62 to Isaiah 58. You guys probably remember this when we covered Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 58, starting in verse 3. The people of God cry out to God and say, why have we fasted and you see it not? In other words, we've done this tradition that you told us to do. Why hasn't it moved you? They say, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, he says. It's all about you. It's about what you want and what you're doing. He says, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, he says, I don't want it. Yeah, sure, you might be keeping Sabbath. Yeah, sure, you might be doing a fast. But the way you actually treat people, you're breaking the first commandment to love God and to love those made in his image. He says, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. He continues on. You can read through as he talks about the Sabbath there in, in verses 13 and 14. Is this how we view religious zeal? Freeing the oppressed, loving one another, cutting back our words that are hurtful and harmful and wicked. We talked about that last week. How many of you this week tried even harder than normal to make sure that as you were speaking about people, speaking to people, you were doing so in a way that was uplifting rather than tearing down? How do we do on that, church? Remember how we discussed the character of the kingdom as being restorative. Jesus was innately challenging the view of the people in Mark that to fast in mourning showed zeal for God. He's saying it doesn't. It's the heart underneath it. It's what you're 
output is, what your fruit is. But Jesus himself, he was one who came for the purpose of doing these things, freeing the oppressed, breaking every yoke. Turn again just to the right a little bit in Isaiah, to Isaiah 61. This is a section of Scripture, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. This is a section that Jesus himself reads in the book of Luke, I believe in chapter 4, where he is in the synagogue and he quotes this, saying it's of him. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God, of Yahweh, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Jesus quotes this of himself in the book of Luke because he's saying, I have come not to propagate a religious mourning, not to propagate old empty tradition, but Jesus came in fact to usher in the active kingdom of God. And once he ascended and stepped away and poured out his Holy Spirit, his church, his body was to do that as well, to display the heart of God in bringing forth justice and ultimately to deliver God's people from the kingdom of darkness and the enslavement of our own sin. And Jesus did just that. And this is what Mark is foreshadowing with the statement that the bridegroom will be taken. You see, Jesus, through his life, but then death on the cross and his resurrection, he did just these things talked of in Isaiah. He was proving who he was, that he was the Messiah. Jesus made good on the Father's promise to deliver his people, to bring salvation. And he did so by giving his own life in ransom for yours and mine, by dying on the cross of Calvary a sinless sacrifice. There was no need for him to be punished, and yet he died for your punishment and mine that we deserve. And so while we await his return, we do so from a point of both celebration, rejoicing, and victory, as well as mourning, but primarily rejoicing because he's granted us salvation. Dear brother, dear sister, do you walk in a way, do you live in a way that shows that you believe that, that you rejoice because you are granted salvation? You see, dear brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us great application here. Are we those who are constantly walking around in gloom, bemoaning the world around us, sad about work and sad about the state of the world, busy, stressed, anxious? Do we look exactly like the world? Or are we those who rejoice that we know and are betrothed to the bridegroom? awaiting the day of his return so that he might call us his beloved and rejoice over us. We live in that tension of mourning the physical separation from him and brokenness of a world not, made yet, not yet made right, but also rejoicing in the knowledge that we are betrothed and await the marriage supper of the Lamb in which we will be with him for eternity. Do we declare that with our attitude and our outlook. I think many of us with our words will say that we are Christians, but with our lives we act as if we're atheists. Are we rejoicing? Becoming a follower of Christ means embracing a new way of life. That's his whole point with the statement about the wineskins and the new wine. The old cannot survive. We have been made new creations in which the Spirit of God dwells and the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, those things overflow out of us. They cannot coexist with the fleshly nature that so many of us persist in. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters. One must give way to the other. If we persist in the old fleshly ways, we will notice ourselves on a trajectory where the spirit starts to slowly dim. But if we allow the spirit to eclipse the flesh, we'll be on a different trajectory. Dear church, this week I want to challenge you to look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You guys know the list. And ask yourself if your attitudes, worldview, if your demeanor, are they new wineskins or old? Are they old wineskins in which the Holy Spirit is trying to work? And if so, take that to prayer. Take that in prayer to God and ask Him to renew your heart so that you might be one that rejoices in your intimate, loving relationship 
with your Savior, King, and Bridegroom. Well, let's move on to the second section. Here are the experts on the law of the Torah, the Pharisees. They're decrying the actions of the disciples as unlawful. In other words, against God's heart. They're walking through the grain fields. They're taking grain or corn. We're not sure which. And Jesus answers with another story. And so why don't you turn to uh, 1 Samuel 21 with me to see that story that he answers. He says to them, have you, not, have you not seen that it was written? And then he goes to 1 Samuel 21. David has fled from King Saul because David has been anointed king by Yahweh and Saul is jealous and wants to kill him. He's throwing his spears at everybody. And so David flees to a city called Nob where Ahimelech is a priest and he's son of Abiathar uh, who is serving. And that's why Abiathar uh, is mentioned in Mark and Ahimelech is here in the story. And so he's serving here in verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of 21. Look, look there with me. It says, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, uh, Ahimelech, um, it means brother of the king, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Very ambiguous. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. In other words, if they hadn't uh, had uh, sexual intercourse recently, they were in a state of purity and, and they could have it. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. The priest here is fearful because David is the captain of Saul's bodyguard. He's also his son-in-law. So for him to show up unannounced, that's a little bit freaky. What's going on here? And David says that he's been charged with a task by the king. Now, some commentators say this is David uh, being wise and kind of lying um, to him. That could be the case. Uh, but the other idea is that he's not lying. He's being ambiguous because he's actually been charged by King Yahweh to go and develop uh, his mighty men to be a force that will fight back against Saul. And so he could be speaking very truthfully, just leaving it ambiguous. Either way, David is hungry and the priest ends up giving him the sacred showbread, bread that was reserved by law for the Levites. But he does so because there's a known statute among the priests and among the rabbis and the Pharisees that ceremonial Torah law could be broken, could be sidestepped, when it came to the saving or sustaining of a life. A life in the law was more important than the law itself. And Jesus uses this story in Mark to challenge the Pharisees with their own rabbinic law, saying to them, guys, you know sustaining life is the one time you can sidestep the law. Now that's not a loophole, that's the heart of God, amen? amen. Now let's look at the law of the Sabbath, for example. They're all, you know, kerfuffled about the Sabbath here. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 5 and look at what it actually says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as Yahweh your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within, uh, who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. See, that's the point, that the servants may rest. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath, along with circumcision, were the top two things that the Jews looked at and said, this is what makes us Jews, keeping the Sabbath and keeping circumcision. But notice that the law itself is actually a law that's not made about the rest piece. We, as a people in Western society who hold idolatry of vacation and retirement, look at this and say, oh, it's about rest. Well, in actuality, some of you need to hear that because you're so busy all the time that you don't have time of silence and solitude to be with God and be with his people. 
And that would be true. But I've also noticed this other side of the Sabbath uh, in the church where there's this new thing where there's almost a legalism that if you don't like lay down on a couch and watch TV, completely rest, you're not fulfilling the Sabbath. What this is written for is justice. This has nothing to do with whether or not you get refreshed to go to work on Monday. This has to do with justice. The law itself is for a caring of the people. If you were with us through Deuteronomy, you saw very quickly that the law was given to display God's heart of righteousness and justice. It was not meant as enslavement to yet another rule. It was meant as freedom, that they would treat their slaves, their servants, their people, their foreigners better than all the rest of the nations. And that justice would allow them to stick out as a people. And yes, rest was part of it because in rest they could focus on Yahweh as opposed to their crops and making money. And so we need to hear both. But even the Pharisees would observe that the most important thing about the Sabbath wasn't actually the doing no work. It was about fulfilling the care for the people because he calls them out in Luke 14.5. Jesus says to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So yes, they're saying the disciples, they're not worthy of getting fed, but I'll pull out my ox or my own child if they fall into a pit. I'll work for them, but these disciples shouldn't. Their hearts were so hardened against Jesus and his rightful claim to the throne of heaven and the throne of Israel that they refused him this law. Now turn back with me to, to Mark. In quoting from this story, Jesus asks the question, down here at the, the bottom of, well, the bottom of my page, down here in verse 26, he says he entered the house of God, he did all this stuff. And then he says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's asking them the question, if Yahweh were willing to allow the anointed king of Israel, whom he had commissioned the freedom to interpret the law in such a way, David, how much more would Yahweh be willing to allow the Messiah, me, he's saying, the king of kings, the freedom to interpret the law in such a way. In other words, he is saying directly to the Pharisees, guys, I'm a way better king than David. Can you imagine how the Pharisees would react to that? As such, the true messianic king that is God, can he not be the lawgiver that then says in Mark 2.28, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I can do with it whatever I want. And notice he also refers to himself as the son of man, another reference to the king of kings portrayed in Daniel that we discussed two weeks ago. These seem like slightly sarcastic comments to we who are not intimately acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures. But to the Pharisee, these were words of warfare. These were fighting words that Jesus was proclaiming himself God, Lord, lawgiver, king of kings, and highest authority. This is kingdom language. This is warfare language. He was challenging their religious system that contradicted the very heart of God. And lastly, we see Jesus in chapter 3 of Mark using this position of lawgiver and rightful author of the law of the Sabbath to question the hearts of the Pharisees. It bleeds over into this section, this discussion of the Sabbath. And because they were silent about the question of should I heal or should I, should I not, and they did not state clearly that God's highest priority was restoration, Jesus judges their hearts and looks upon them with anger, grieved that they who should know God's heart the most did not. Now you might think, what proclamation is here? I don't see one. He talked about being the bridegroom. He talked about being the Lord of the Sabbath. He talked about being the son of man, but there's nothing here. Well, it's true that there's no explicit pronouncement but there is an implicit one. Notice that the author prefaces the context of the story with the question of killing or giving life, doing good or doing harm. And notice further that he finishes the section with the fact that the Pharisees teamed up with this group known as the Herodians to do what? To destroy Jesus. In stating this, the author is giving us a view of allegiances. Jesus is allegiant to the one that gives life, because he is the head of that kingdom, the kingdom of life. His opponents are allegiant to the kingdom that brings destruction. Does this call anything to mind of any other words of Jesus? In John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The author is not explicitly proclaiming anything, but implicitly he is claiming that Jesus is the bringer of life to a dead world. 
And he is saying that those who oppose him, they are bringers of destruction, adversaries of God, bringers of death. And Mark is setting up the showdown between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, one of destruction, the other of life, one ruled by Christ and populated by his saints who likewise work to bring life and restoration, and the other ruled by what the apostle John in Revelation calls Apollyon, the the destroyer, and populated by those that bring destruction. It's another name for Satan, the destroyer. This section, as we will see, rolls into another section in which Jesus begins to define for the hearer those inside the kingdom and those outside the kingdom, those allegiant to him and those allegiant to the kingdom of darkness. There is no other choice, dear people. If you are not fully allegiant to Jesus Christ, constantly walking in a state of repentance, laying down your life at his feet, allowing his spirit to rise up in your life, then most likely you are allegiant to the one that leads the kingdom of darkness. You're allegiant to the destroyer, the adversary of God, known as Ha-Satan, Satan himself, in the Jewish scriptures. You might think, Hans, that's a little bit harsh. No, it's not, because you can only serve one master. You can't serve one and the other. This section is so important to grasp. What seems to be mysterious, parabolic, riddle-like answers from Jesus are actually astounding and provocative statements based upon in the Hebrew scriptures and their pronouncements of his identity as the bridegroom of God's people. He calls himself God. He's identifying himself as the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath, proclaiming himself to be the lawgiver, again proclaiming himself God. And lastly, he identifies himself as the giver of life in sharp contrast to the destroyer. I remember a 2020 special years ago, Tom Brokaw or somebody was leading it, and it was the big question of the special was, did Jesus ever claim to be God? And I remember the opening scene. He says, if you read the Bible, you can see that Jesus never proclaimed explicitly to be God. And I remember thinking, oh boy. (laughs) I think he missed the mark by a long shot. Yes, maybe Jesus never stood up and said the exact words, I am God. But he said everything else that pointed to that fact. And the very reason, as someone just said, the very reason that they wanted to kill him was because he proclaimed that. These are not pronouncements to make Jewish leaders uh, feel like they want to be friends of Jesus. This is not how you influence people and win friends. Jesus is going to war with those who would mistake him as anything other than what he is pronounced to be in Scripture. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He's the lawgiver, the judge, the lover of his people, and the enemy of destruction. So the question for us, as it has been and will be in Mark, is who do you say that Jesus is? Does he have all of your allegiance? And when you notice your your allegiance is not towards him, do you repent immediately and give it to him? Today, we've seen the parties involved in the confusion and the conflict. We've seen the predicament that they bring to Jesus, and we've seen the proclamation of Jesus' answer that he is God and king, he is judge, not the Pharisees. And so the question for us is, is how does this apply to us? And so I want you to write down a couple of words to spark some thinking this week. The first word I want you to write down is the word Sabbath. Sabbath. I already talked a little bit about it, but what is the Sabbath for you? The first question is, is it a time of rest for you, or do you just go, 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 go? Do you have any time in your schedule where you can call it a Sabbath rest, where you focus in, in silence and solitude to focus on the Lord and to focus on his people? Or have you bought into this thing that is very much American, where it is, no, it's about doing what you like and having fun on the Sabbath? That's okay. Don't hear me saying that's a bad thing, but that's not the point. The point is, is to focus purposefully on God. Give one day in seven to God so that you can focus on him and focus on his people. And in so doing, we should find rest. We should find rest in the one who is the rest bringer. We should find rest in each other. And yes, we should have physical rest. If you leave church in order to go to work and you don't have a separate day off, right, then there needs to be an adjustment. And I am the king of sinners in this because if you know me, I am in a place right now where I have seven straight days of work. I have not regularly had a day off since I started my internship up in Wilsonville. 
But that day is coming. There is an end to it where I will have two days of rest with my family. And so the reality is, is that we need to make adjustments and we need to do things in our life that will bring a time where we have focused time for God and his people and time of rest. We are not designed to run 100% seven days a week. Take time with your family. Take time with your friends. Another thing that I'd say is, do you on the Sabbath say, this is my family day, we're going to close off from everybody else, or do you invite other people into it? That's great if you have family days, and I would encourage you in that, but also, is there ever a time where you invite other people that are God's people into it so you can together refresh one another and focus upon Christ? How do you view the Sabbath? The second thing is, I want you to write down the word confusion. Confusion. Is there confusion in how you view Jesus when compared to Scripture? I want all of you to think about the first time you came to this church and heard me talk about Jesus as King. If you were anything like me in my early years of Christianity, you would have gone, what? He's my Savior, not my King. What are you talking about? I have to submit to him? What? Do you, what? No, he's my friend. He's my buddy. He's my homie. You know the church, Jesus is my homie, right? That's, that's who Jesus is. Is there confusion in who Jesus is when compared to Scripture? Is he your king and you are meant for his purposes or is it the other way around? He's your servant and he's meant for your purposes. Does he see you as his beloved? That's the truth of scripture. Or are you still walking in shame wondering if he's pleased with you? That needs to be repented from. Where might you struggle to see the appropriate Jesus? Are there old ways of viewing God, of viewing Christ, of viewing the church, of viewing Christianity that you have learned in your time here that need to change? I remember when we were implementing membership, I had so many people come up to me and say, what is this new thing, this newfangled thing that you're doing? Well, in fact, I'd say it's been orthodox in the church for probably about 2,000 years. Are there things that are different for you because you grew up in a certain denomination or grew up in a certain way or heard the Bible a certain way, and now you're kind of freaked out because, man, I'm hearing different things? Maybe you grew up in a Christianity that was very touchy-feely and everything had to do with what you felt and what you thought. And now you're being asked to go to Scripture and submit your feelings and thoughts to Scripture and that might be really uncomfortable. What is the confusion? Just like these people were confused about who Christ is, where might you be confused? Where might you need to have change and embrace things that Scripture says that are hard for you? I want to challenge you this week to press into those uncomfortable areas those new understandings, and search out in Scripture if they are true. Don't take my word for it or anyone else here, but search them out and let the Holy Spirit challenge you where you might need to adjust your view of Christ and His church. Confusion. Third, I want you to write down conflict. Is there conflict with Christ in your life? Are there areas of your life that you don't want to give over to Him or where repentance is needed, but you're unwilling to do it? Are there places in your life, maybe in your relationships, where we know that it would be good to do something, to talk to someone, to have that hard conversation, but you're unwilling to do so because of fear or a hardened heart? Recognize that if we stay in that place of conflict with Christ, our allegiance will fade. And when we do that, we are allowing ourselves to be bound up and destroyed, not given life. Christ came to free us. Example is the hard conversations. Often, folks, when you have those hard conversations, they'll actually bring freedom and liberty and life, not destruction and enslavement. Where might you be in conflict with Christ? And lastly, and this is just a, a freebie here, I'm going to use Seth's wording there. As we uh, come closer to Christmas in the season of Advent, I want you to ask yourself if maybe you've confused Christ and his coming with the trappings of Christmas, capitalism, and maybe even worship of the false American view of family. Folks, if you focus in on who Jesus is and that this season is about remembering his birth, and even though it's off, and that was probably in the spring, we celebrate it now because of church fathers, and that's fine. But do you use this season to celebrate his birth so that he could come, live, minister, die, resurrect, ascend, be enthroned, and he's coming again? Because if you keep your focus on that, 
You can have the most lame Christmas family get-togethers with people arguing about politics, and, and you won't rejoice any less. It won't actually bother you. But if you put your stock in, oh, maybe this will be the year where we finally have the Christmas where everyone gets along, then you're going to be disappointed. If you put your stock in, this year we're going to have the tree I've always wanted, maybe a 16-footer that'll fit in my living room. That's one for Seth. He has a 16-footer, just FYI. It'll finally be Christmas because we can have that tree. Well, you're probably going to be disappointed when it takes you 35 people to raise it up and you have to tack it to the wall. Amen. Amen. If it's maybe I'll finally get that thing I've always wanted and then it breaks six days in and you're like, man, that was disappointing. If you put your stock in these things, Christmas will disappoint you because you're confused and you're looking past the, past the truth of who Jesus is. But if you put your stock in Jesus as the Messiah who came to love us and show us that we are his beloved, this Christmas will be a time of rejoicing. So that's a freebie just at this time of year that we can throw in dealing with this topic of confusion. So today as we look at this idea of conflict and confusion in these different groups, these different parties, I hope that you can pull out something that helps you wrestle with have I been confused in who I view Jesus to be? Am I in conflict with him? Are there things that I need to adjust by Jesus' words to me so that I can walk in fullness of relationship with him, with his people, and so I can truly represent him as he intends? Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scripture.